You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read books by black authors and they're talked about by a black author. And you can listen if you are black or not black, that is okay. This week on the podcast, we are ta- we are talking about Fred Moten's In the Break, The Making of the Black Radical Aesthetic. And I'm going to hop right in without much of an introduction because this is a difficult book and it's going to be a challenge to talk about it in 30 minutes. So here we go. How did I come to this book? I really have no idea. Uh, I found it on my computer about a month ago, and when I was making a schedule for the podcast, I decided this would be a good one to read. So this episode, we read the first two chapters, which were really an introduction in the first chapter. I thought I would be reading the first two chapters, but the introduction turned out to be very long and very dense. So that's what we're reading this week, and uh, it's not without, it doesn't make complete, um, it's not completely odd that I have this book because it does have a lot in common with Cedric Robinson's book, Black Marxism. It even references Cedric Robinson multiple times. And it also has, uh, things in common with C. Riley Snorton's work, which we read about six weeks ago. The book Black on Both Sides, which was a history of trans and black identity in America. Both of those books reference an essay by Horton Spillers, so there's a lot of crossover with the things that that we've been reading. So it's not that odd that I came to this book or that it was on my computer. Uh, it makes sense that I would have a book like this. All right, so what is this book about? Try to provide a brief introduction. This is not, again, not an easy book. So first of all, the title uh, in the break, but the making of the black radical tradition. So um, if you accept... Cedric Robinson's idea of black radicalism, that is, that it is a critique, a better critique of capitalism than Marxism. This is kind of what, kind of something like what this book is about, but it's more of an aesthetic idea, but essentially an idea of a, let's call it intrinsic type of radicalism within black people and in Cedric Robinson's work, it's a critique of capitalism. In this work, it's not not a critique of capitalism, but it's more focused on specifically the aesthetics and how that radicalism is expressed through black art, more specifically 20th century black art and its aesthetics. How's that? How did I do? I think that was pretty good. Okay, so then uh, a couple of bullet points to hit. So that's the title. And then B, another thing that this would be about is black performance. What underlies black performance? And black performance is a very specific term. We'll get into it later. And whether or not black performance is ever outside of the economy of reproduction. Another big theme here is the inability of language to accurately communicate. And therefore the idea that communicating something is more or other than just the words that you're saying. And more specifically, how does that tie into being black? It ties into the idea that there is a specific intrinsic intrinsic black aesthetic that exists outside of language. And that is also black performance. Okay, so if that makes sense. That's what we're looking at here. That would be, I think, the best wrap up I can do for just the general idea of what this book is about. 
So then getting into the chapters, it'll make a little bit more sense. All right. So let's get into the chapters. We just read two. And then we'll talk after those about my thoughts on the book. And yeah, plans for the next version. So we can actually go through this a little bit slower. I feel like we were sprinting just now. All right, the first chapter, it's not even called an introduction, so I wouldn't necessarily even view it that way. It's more like, I mean, it is an introduction, but I'm trying to think of what a term is for when you, when you don't want the introduction, like a, like a, um, a prologue is more like what it is. Like it sets the tone for the book rather than an introduction in which you're like, um, in which the writer's talking to you and explaining exactly what the book's going to be, be about. It is that, but it isn't. So, the name, of, uh, the name of that first chapter is Resistance of the Object, and the first line is actually a, is about as good a summation as you're going to get here. The history of blackness is the testament to the fact that objects can and do resist. And so he starts out with this essay that deals with Frederick Douglass's autobiography. It was written by Saida Harmon, and in this essay she refuses to discuss the beating of, or the whipping, I should say, of Aunt Hester, who was a slave, and Frederick Douglass witnessed this uh, whipping, and then um, Sayed Harmon's using it to talk about something else, but the point is, is that she doesn't want to keep reproducing this um, black pain experience because it's a type of performance, so that gets us into the initial idea of performance. Okay, so from there, Moten jumps off and talks about a bunch of stuff, but the Frederick Douglass essay kind of bookends this opening chapter. So that's our portal into this, is this idea of object and then the idea of performance. And the performance is established by Saida Harmon's essay, where she says, I'm not going to talk about this thing. Okay. So then what Moten does is he goes through and he wants to start to establish that he wants to make the link between objects and blackness or blackness and objects. So that's that's the first thing. And so he does this a couple of different ways. One of the first way or the most important way, maybe the most thorough way is he talks about Marx and how Marx. So Moten with Marx wants to reject the notion that the commodity has no speech. And he also wants to establish the fact that there is an objectness and a thingness to being black historically. And that's similar to what C. Riley Snorton wrote about in his work. And the final goal of all of this is to establish that an object has value before it is assigned value from the outside. So there's a whole exchange value, user value thing that Moten goes through. But the the upshot of it is that he's what he's trying to get at is basically Marx's didn't even consider the idea of like human commodities and then because of not considering that not considering that those are also objects and things that they have intrinsic value so that of course would then have you just gloss over the fact that things actually do have an intrinsic value. Moten goes on to talk about the fact that even if you did say that commodities or black people were commodities or things or or objects you then have to ask yourself well if they couldn't speak in the way that their master spoke is that really speech so then he goes further and establishes the fact that 
there are sounds that exist outside of, or the, specifically he says, linguistic signals are not physical in any way. That's him quoting a different cultural theorist. And the point of that just is that there are sounds that exist outside of words and language and that words and language actually are kind of handicapped by their, uh, their meaning, right? Because he wants to eventually get at the notion that there is something more to communicating than just words. After all of that, so basically we started with black performance and the idea that it's been, it's reproduced over time and that Sayyidah Harman didn't want to keep reproducing it. Moten then sets out to kind of establish what is black performance by first saying that there's a thingness and an otherness to black performance, excuse me, to blackness, and then establishing the fact that even if these things, these objects, these black bodies, couldn't speak in the way that their master spoke, they still made sound, and sound is a way of communicating, right? And then, any time black people made sound, or did any kind of expression that was outside of the structure that was imposed on them, he goes on to say, these material degradations are black performances, right? These fissures or invaginations of a foreclosed universality are black performances. So then he wants to get into the idea of, can black performances not be reproduced? If they have this intrinsic thing in them, can they not be reproduced? He also brings up the fact that by Harmon saying that she's not going to reproduce the performance, she's reproduced the performance. So that's in there too. But going on a deeper level, because that's just like a kind of a, not a superficial critique, but at least an obvious one. On a deeper level, he goes in and talks about, he quotes in a long passage um, of Frederick Douglass, he actually goes in and quotes the entire Aunt Hester thing. But then later on, in the same autobiography, Douglass has a passage where he says, they would sing as a chorus to words which to many would seem unmeaning jargon, but which nevertheless were full of meaning to themselves. I have sometimes thought that the mere hearing of these songs would do more to impress the minds with the horrible character of slavery than the reading of whole volumes of philosophy on the subject could do. So that really is a testament to the sound idea that, that Moton's trying to get at. So yeah, I mean, you can see the difficulty in the, the logical progression of what's going on here. Because even reading it, you're kind of like, well, what? So I had to read it a couple times. But yeah, just to kind of give an overview again, it's the idea of black performance, which is established with Aunt Hester in Frederick Douglass's autobiography. Then we're taken through the paces and shown, here's how black people are things and objects, historically. Then we're shown that these thing or, things or objects have intrinsic value because they had speech. And then we're shown that, what do we mean by speech? Well, we don't necessarily mean words, right? We can mean sound. And then we're shown that this sound and all of these material degradations are black performance. So that ties us back into Aunt Hester. And then we're shown by Frederick Douglass's own words in a passage that's just a little bit after the Aunt Hester passage, we're shown how those sounds, which were unmeaning jargon to some, were full of meaning to fellow slaves, and Douglas himself, and that that is a type of black performance. And so is it possible 
for black performance to be to exist without re- reproduction would be the question being posed in the first section here, right? The resistance of objects. So that's the first chapter, all right? That, that's a lot, but I think that's a pretty good summary of it. The second chapter is called The Sentimental Avant-Garde, and I'll try to go through this a little bit quicker. It's just as dense, but um, we'll just try to hit on the bigger ideas here. Biggest idea in this section would be the originary unit, or I'm just gonna, I really don't like the word originary. I felt it was unnecessary. So I'll just say the origin, this idea of basically what precedes any natal event, right? So any genesis event, what precedes it? There always has to be something that precedes the thing. So that's a huge deal. And he talks about um, Freud's concept of eros, this life instinct, and basically what came before that, okay? So that's a huge part of this. Then the second part of it is, again, the word meaning thing. And he uses uh, Derrida's idea of difference. Don't know if I'm pronouncing either one of those words correctly. But basically, within the context of this book, there's a lot to that idea. So within the context of this book, this passage, what he's talking about is the idea that words can't really convey what one means. So if you just mash those two ideas together, one idea is that there's always something preceding something, and the other idea is that words don't really tell you what you mean because there's something preceding the words. So what is that something? Okay, that's what he's trying to get at. Then in the first section of this chapter, after he kind of establishes those ideas, he gets to Duke Ellington, which, well, Duke Ellington was there the whole time, but the whole point of that first section is to kind of talk about the fact that Duke Ellington, um, his music, so I'm quoting Moten here now, he, speci- he literally says, what I'm really trying to say is this, Ellington's music reconfi- reconfigures the context in which everything, which is to say music, is read. And then in parentheses, he writes, he doesn't, he writes this plus sign, the equal sign, and more. So plus equals more. Okay. So what does that mean? Well, here music is everything because it's sound and it's a it's a pure and more exact way of communicating than words. And later on, he quotes Cecil Taylor, who says, everything is music if you frame it correctly or structure it correctly. So the idea here is that Ellington's music reconfigures everything because it is the black aesthetic based off of sound, which is something that pre pre predates um, words. So it's a pure, more exact way of communicating what one means because words fail and there's always something before something. That's pretty much the second part or first part. The second part is when the the avant-garde is more thoroughly discussed. Uh, this one I'm going to breeze through. So, because I don't really know about the artists who he mentions in here. And the ideas are, I think, you know, easier to sum up. So I'll just use Moten's quote. He says, the avant-garde is a black thing and that blackness is an avant-garde thing. So there you go. And then he discusses a lot of this with Beaufort, Delaney, and Billy Strayhorn. And they're interesting ideas. I'm not really familiar with either one of their uh, their work, but uh, I looked it up and it Beaufort Delaney's work looks awesome, and Billy Strayhorn is a jazz musician, so I would be happy to be familiar with his work. But there wasn't anything in that section that was too hard to understand necessarily. It's just that is more like a more like a, a Cedric Robinson. You can see the link there of just like 
radicalism being inherent in black people because really the avant-garde is being out there on the edge outside of the mainstream or against um, mainstream ideas. And so that was not too hard to understand or just, you know, not even like a necessarily a difficult idea or anything I'd have pushback about, but really more just not too hard to understand because a lot of the stuff in this book is hard to understand. Okay. I, I quite literally read this introduction and first chapter two times. Then in the third section of chapter one, we get into Cecil Taylor, and this is m more about words versus sound. So this we, we continue to go there. And I would say the refrain of this chapter is, words don't go there, which is a thing that was said by a jazz critic talking about Cecil Taylor's spoken word poetry jazz album, uh, which was entitled uh, Chinapas, which is an Aztec word. So I don't know why I pronounce it like, you know, Spanish, but there you go. And so, again, we get into the idea of words being constrained by their meanings. And uh, we get into the idea that black art is, by its very nature, anti-totalitarian and therefore avant-garde. And then um, probably the thing that sums this chapter up the best is, because he really concentrates a lot on that spoken word album, Chinapas, he writes... The aural rewriting of grammatical rule is not simply arbitrary, but a function of the elusive content Cecil Taylor wanted to convey. He really wants to focus on the idea that Cecil Taylor, who was a classically trained musician who got into jazz and then free jazz, so, you know, knew all the rules and then broke them, but the, the content he wanted to convey couldn't be conveyed by words, with just writing poetry, and that um, combining his music with just poetry, but the poetry is really not in any way, shape, or form straightforward. That was the only way he could get across what he wanted to say, because words alone will fail. And then in the last section, he continues to hammer the point home about improvisation. Obviously, if you're talking about jazz and if you're talking about Cecil Taylor, and he also talked about Coltrane and um, Eric Dolphy, if you're talking about these guys, you got to be talking about improvisation. That's all about the idea of what happens before something happens, right? Because if you're improving, the, the concept is your mind is clear and you just you come up with it right there on the instant. But then something had to be there before something was there. Otherwise, how could anything be there, right? This, you can see how this book will run you around in circles. But a few quotes from this section, which um, will run you around in circles. Here we go. Quote number one, that which is without foresight is nothing other than foresight. I mean, if improv is without foresight, that means that it is uh, foresight. The thing that is without foresight is just foresight. You, you meditate on that for a while. Number two, improvisation is already an improvisation of improvisation. And then, so I wrote here as a summation of this, uh, this gets more into the idea of the intrinsic thing. So that's what he's trying to get at here. He, he, and he continues with the passage from Invisible Man to illustrate how invisibility in the invisible man means a lack of visibility but also it means being seen and dismissed so you're being negated it's you couldn't just be invisible you had to have been visible to have been made invisible something existed before it existed 
And then he quotes a different passage to uh, talk about how the, the, the character in the book, it's been like 18 years since I read the book, the character in the book is going to a debate with nothing in his mind. But even when you have nothing in your mind, you have something in your mind. And the character admits as much. I told you I was going to this debate without anything in my mind, but I have something in my mind. Because even when you have nothing in your mind, you have something in your mind. There's still something there. And what is that thing that's there? I believe what Moten is trying to get us to understand is that thing that is there is the black aesthetic. So that's the summary of the book. And then how do I feel about the book? The first thing is the amount of reading required to understand this book is not just the book. You would need to read outside of it, specifically reading um, about deconstruction. You you should really spend some time reading about deconstruction because the ideas presented, Derrida's ideas that are presented are not straightforward. And for instance, there's a whole concept of the idea, the, the event that collapses, excuse me, the event that causes a rupture and how all structure as a center, but that center is not really part of the structure, but it's also part of the structure. Like there's this whole idea and the and the concept of invagination as well. Both of these concepts are not things that can be quickly like ingested within the 80 or 90 pages that comprises the first two chapters or sections of this book. So you really need to read those before reading this book. I, I would say to get like a, a good understanding of this. You know, I I read them afterwards and I was vaguely familiar with them before, but it probably would help. So that's like, I guess, kind of a critique, but that's a critique of all of this these kinds of books. You just have to keep reading more. The second thing would be the language. So there's a lot of academic jargon in here, which is fine. You know, that, that happens with these types of books. Um... At some points, I thought the book didn't make sense, but then when I went back and reread it, so what I did was I read the first chapter and I read the second chapter, and then I came back and reread the highlights of what I had thought would be important passages, and then when I went went back and reread those highlights and then further like around the highlights and stuff, so you end up just reading most of the book again, I thought the passages made more sense. So it wasn't the academic jargon then I decided that bothered me. But like the syntax and symbols and the spelling, I felt that the book was kind of trying to be in the black aesthetic that it's describing. And I just don't feel like that's useful. It's like hard to get through when it's like that. So I want I wanted it to be clear. And a good example would be like the Duke Ellington quote from earlier, where in parentheses it has the plus sign and then the equal sign and then more. Just just explain what you're talking about. Like, I just want, I don't want a, I either want a scholarly work or I want a, like, artistic manifesto. And this is, like, somewhere in between, I think. It's still footnoted extensively, but I guess because it mentions Cedric Robinson, because it mentions, and I've not read Saida Hartman, uh, but from her essay that's included here, I was expecting that kind of work. Uh, Cedric Robinson's work is like, yeah, hard to read because it's just academic, but the concepts are well explained and clear. Whereas here, that's not the case necessarily. And 
part of it is that these concepts aren't as straightforward, right? So these are not things that you can necessarily get at. And if you're reading any cultural critic, you know, as, as we mentioned before, like Foucault or Baudrillard, or, I mean, Baudrillard especially, Foucault, I think is okay. C. Riley Snorton from earlier this year. If you're reading any person who's dabbling into cultural criticism, it gets, it can get hairy. But usually it's hairy for different reasons. I, I felt the hairiness here, again, wasn't necessarily the language as just some choices of syntax and symbols, you know? And there was a, and I feel like the syntax and symbols thing is very much a artistic slash poetic choice. And it didn't have to be. That's the, that's the end of that. It just didn't have to be. Instead of like, you know, where you write like, um, you want to write impossibility or possibility, right? There's places where it says like, I am slash possibility. I don't need that. I don't need that in this work. This work is already dense enough and hard enough to understand that anything like that is just one more layer keeping me away from the actual meaning of what's going on. Now, maybe Moten would just say, hey, look, buddy, the entire point is, is that these words are only, you know, a layer behind my meaning anyway, and you can't get to the meaning as it's constructed no matter what. So the syntax, that, that other layer of syntax is actually helping because now you're getting more of a kind of a idea of what the aesthetic is all about that I'm trying to describe. That's possible. And maybe I am. Maybe on some level I am. But on another level, every time I saw one of those things, I just thought like, you know, if you just spelled out possibility and impossibility, I don't know if it would enhance my understanding of the the uh, black radical aesthetic, but I know that I would be less upset right now. <laughs> so, so I kind of wish that would have happened. I guess uh, I'll close by discussing whether or not I'm convinced. Cause that's what I did with the Cedric Robinson book. Am I convinced? And am I convinced by this idea of the uh, black radical aesthetic? like the Cedric Robinson book, I would say I'm predisposed to be convinced to it. So it's almost a moot question because, yeah, I believe it. I'm a big fan of like 90% of the work that he mentions in here. So it's going to be real difficult for me to come away from, you know, after a good number of decades now, two decades of, it's not really a good number, after two decades of listening to jazz and being a jazz fan and listening to hip hop and certainly those are my two favorite forms of music. The two that I listen to the most often do, do I believe that there's a black aesthetic that exists outside of language and words that were imposed onto black people and that better conveys the, the intrinsic radicalism and nature of what it is to be African to originate from Africa in some way, shape or form. Yeah, I can believe that. Yeah, but I'm predisposed to believe it. So I guess it's convinced me on that level. I have no idea about like the science behind this. I would say like I would have questions about uh, how realistic that kind of idea is scientifically, biologically. Seems less than realistic because then, you know, with something like Cedric Robinson, that's different. That's cultural, like people are born 
into a culture and then have a cultural, you know, a cultural norms that lend themselves towards resistance when capitalism is imposed on them. Okay, I can get with that. But like, just the idea that, I guess, I guess what we'll have to come through is whether or not Mr. Moden is saying that this radical aesthetic is attached to um, when's the genesis of this thing? He's, he doesn't really like these ordinary units things, though, so we'll see. But when's the genesis of it? Is it in America? Does it predate America? Does it come from Africa? Or is it... Because I don't think that's really been established yet in the book. So when we get there, that'll be more... Uh, if 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 it even matters. But if that's not what he's saying, if he's just saying the black radical aesthetic as it has been constituted in the New World once the European invaded upon African history. Yeah, I'm down for that. No question. I mean, it's not even really a, how could I not be? So this just helps clarify some things. It does help clarify some things and it definitely presents some very interesting ideas. And it, I mean, the best thing about this book really is that it takes those weighty deconstructionist ideas and applies them to blackness and, you know, same thing with like Marx, not the Marx the deconstructionist, but taking these theories that were, that seem liberating and, you know, potentially are, but they never really seem to include black people. But that's the thing about Robinson and Moton's work is we're going to take these theories that are by Europeans and really for Europeans, even if they say they're for the, the proletariat or for society at large, and we're going to specifically apply them to black people. So probably the best part of this book. And then, you know, one of the good things about Cedric Robinson's work as well, but there's plenty there. Okay. That's it. I think we got it under 30 minutes, but if not, you know, it's really close. Next on the podcast in two weeks, I'll be finishing up this book, reading chapters two and three or sections three and four, however you want to describe it. And yeah, hopefully we can keep that one in the 30 minutes. That'll be tougher because those that, that is longer, but we'll see. Until then, stay safe, stay black, and keep reading.